The three points we're going to hit tonight in this, these few verses are, are these. There is indeed, there is indeed a lost treasure in this life. The second thing we'll look at is the treasure is Jesus and he can be found. That seems like if you're a Christian or raised in the church, you're like, well, thanks for the news flash. But it's not as obvious as we think. And then the last thing is when you find the treasure, you should build your life on it. So there is indeed lost treasure. That treasure is Jesus and you should build your life on it. Why don't you stand up and we'll read the passage. This is Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. This is Paul, again, kind of picking up mid-argument. He's saying this. For I want you, Colossians, and I want you tonight to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at this other town, Laodicea, and for all of those who have never met me face to face yet. My struggle is so that your hearts, so that your hearts may be encouraged, so that your hearts would be knit together in love, so that you would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is this, Jesus Christ, he says, in whom, in this Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one would delude you or lead you astray with plausible or good-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent with you in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, and I rejoice to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Jesus. Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Why don't we pray? Lord Jesus, uh, thinking about tonight, I was thinking of the image of these messages, these little talks, it seems like looking at a fire pit full of wood and trying to talk it into flame. That's impossible, and I know it's impossible, and I know that I can't even talk my own heart, my own self into flame, into love for you. I can't even open my own eyes, much less open my friend's eyes. But as J.R. said earlier, With you, it is possible. You are the strong one. You are the healing one. You are the good one. You're the powerful one. And so tonight, I pray that you would get in between the words leaving my mouth and the ears hearing it and cause my friends' hearts, cause them to light on fire, cause them to set ablaze, to see you, to know you. Tonight, break the hearts. Tonight, open the eyes. We pray in your name. Amen. Thanks. And why don't you take a seat? Well, we usually start these out with a little uh, a story or something to kind of orient you and pull you into the passage. And tonight, we're going to start in the deep end of the pool. So put your, put your theological hats on because I have something to share with you. And then we'll kind of come up for air in a minute. There is a confession or a creed that's been going around the church for hundreds of years. Confessions and creeds were basically the way the church tried to educate an entire country of people in a quick amount of time. So they would make these confessions and these creeds. Now, there's a really famous one. goes by the name of the Westminster Confession. The very first question and answer. They would do it like question and answer because people would learn it better. The very first question and answer goes like this. What is man's, ladies too, 
What is our chief end or what's the purpose of a human being? That's how it starts. What's the purpose of a human being? And the answer that it gives right after that is that man's chief end or man's purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Okay? So to to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, here's what this means. We're going to take a few shots at this because those are not words we use very much in our day-to-day life. What this means is that if it's true, it means that enjoyment... And this word called glory, enjoyment and glory, are at the bullseye of what it means to be a human being. Not a Christian, not a spiritual religious person, but a homo sapien, a human being. At the bullseye, the core essence of what it means to be a person, a human being, is that you were built, you were engineered to glorify God. That's, that's giving something to another And to enjoy him, that's receiving something from another. You were built a directional creature with your God. This is actually wired in. Again, if this is true, this is wired in by your maker, not just into your heart and your soul, not just into your spiritual side of you, but this is wired into your psyche. This this craving, this desire, this drive to enjoy God and to enjoy his stuff. And this, this urge to glorify him, it's built into you. It's also built into your body. There are entire nerve endings and neuron pathways in your brain that are there specifically for the purpose of registering and recording and feeling this joy. There's nerve clusters in your body. There's, there's places where you can remember happy things and they're designed, they're put by there. I would say the Bible says Because you were built, you were engineered, you were wired, you were structured for the singular purpose of enjoying your maker and of glorifying him, which means to make much of him, to adore him, to love him, to want him. Think of it this way. Let's get a little bit visual here. That's a little abstract. We're made to glorify and enjoy God forever. Think of this, God as the source of, of your enjoyment. You can't enjoy, you can't just enjoy, you have to enjoy something, right? There has to be a thing or an object that you're enjoying, right? Joy just doesn't pop into your head and it has no purpose. You think about something, you experience something, you taste something, you do something, and joy comes. There has to be a source, a fuel source for joy, right? This makes sense. We're still, this is easy stuff right now. Uh, there has to be a, a source or an object for your joy. And what this is saying, what, what Scripture is saying, we'll show you how this passage is in a minute, is that God himself, the person of God, not his stuff, not fuzzy little warm feelings, but the person of God himself is the source, the fuel source, the wood in the fire pit. So what's our enjoyment? If that's what the source of our enjoyment is, what's the enjoyment? Well, the enjoyment is the flame. So as, 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 as we look at him, as we know him, as we're known by him, as we see his power, his beauty, his brilliance, his involvement in the day-to-day details of our life and our world, that catches into flame. And we begin to enjoy him and delight in him and actually want him. And he's beautiful to us and he, he warms us. There's energy there. And the the smoke that comes off of that flame is the glory. So to to kind of flip back 
the metaphor of, of our side of this, what this means is as, as you know God as you're known by him, as you, bec- as you are made, put at peace with him, as you understand his grace, as you taste him, he becomes more and more like a person, a friend to you, and less and less like an idea or an ideology or a religion to you. But he's personal. Your enjoyment of him increases. The more you know of him, the more wood that's on the fire, the hotter the flame, right? The more enjoyment. And the more the enjoyment, the more smoke, which is our thanksgiving, our gratitude, our glory, our making much of him, right? Makes sense. The sword, the wood, the flame, the smoke. This is what that confession says life was made to be about. Now, here's the problem with this. Something really bad has happened, right? Because how many of you, does that even in the same ballpark of describing what your day or your week or your month or your life was like? Having such face-to-face intimate knowledge of your maker that you adore him, that you love him, that you enjoy him, that you enjoy his stuff. That you that smoke starts to come off of that joy, that this glory, that you start to talk about it, your life just radiates how good your God is, your maker is. How many of you had a day like that today or a week or a month or a life? I would venture to bet there's some of you in here who've probably never had a day like that. There's some of you in here who maybe you're a Christian, you grew up in the church and it's been a long, long time since you had a day like that or a thought like that just overwhelmed with how good he is. So what, what happened, if that's the case? If our days and our lives are, are maybe more like sitting around a fire pit and there's no wood, or what if your life is more like searching for firewood and you never find anything and you've given up? If that's the case, then what happened? This is all true. What happened If our lives were supposed to be this experience, this heat, this flame, this fire, this smoke, this glory. Paul would say in this passage, actually he would say in everything we've read up to this passage, the problem is that we've lost the treasure you were made for. You've lost the treasure that we were made for. We've lost it. Not lost sight of it, not lost a grip on it, but lost it. It left. Goodbye. There's a separation between the treasure you were made for, the God you were made for, and you, the one made in his image. And so now life without him is sitting by the fire pit with no fire. The Bible says we lost our helper when sin came into the world. The Bible says we lost our treasure. We talked about it the past couple of weeks. Alienated, right? Which means made foreign to God. Separated, sent out away from him because of the guilt that covered us. Paul talked in a couple of weeks, even before that, he talked about us being captives in a dungeon of darkness. That's what he said we came out of the womb as in this world. All of us were not born churchy people or people who love God. Paul says, the Bible says, Bible will argue with you if you think you're a good person. The Bible says you came out of your mother's womb a captive in this dungeon of darkness, dead to God, God dead to you, alienated from him, knowing you were made for treasure, but never being able to find it. That's the condition we came out of the womb in. In Romans 1, the same Paul who wrote Colossians says, we, meaning us, exchanged or traded. We did a little side bet. We exchanged the glory of God for images or or knockoffs 
of the created stuff. So we exchanged God himself for the stuff God made, right? We're like, cut the umbilical cord between the God who made sex and sex. Cut the umbilical cord between the God who made food and food. I just want the stuff. I don't want him. I don't care about him. I want this. That's what Paul said our hearts do. We want it. We want it. And we don't want him. He says we exchanged the truth about God for lies and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's how Paul describes our situation. We are lost treasure hunters. We've lost our treasure. But then, remember a couple of weeks ago, we, Paul says in, the, in a, little, a few verses earlier in chapter 1 of Colossians, he starts describing the treasure. Do you remember that, that week where we talked about who Jesus actually is? He's not the Mr. Rogers who's always got a smile on his face and like gently walks through life. But he is the firstborn of all creation. He says he's the first, he's the last, and he's everything in between. He says that everything was made by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus, which means everything in the universe, everything in history, everything in reality is all about him. Not about us, but all about him. So Paul holds up Jesus now. He doesn't just say you're lost treasure hunters. He doesn't just say you've lost the treasure. He doesn't just diagnose us. He begins to hold up the treasure and say, look at this diamond in all these brilliant ways. Look at how beautiful he is, how powerful he is. He's holding up the treasure before our eyes. So let's rewind before we push on. We were made for treasure. You were made for your God to glorify and to know him and to enjoy him and to love him. You were made for a treasure. We lost that treasure. We've been searching for it ever since. We find cheap knockoffs to replace it. Some of us have even done what Flannery O'Connor said we would do. She's my favorite author, and I say this every semester. She says, ours is a generation that is prone to domesticate despair and live happily with it. Which means ours is a generation that's prone to say, we weren't made for treasure. Life's supposed to hurt. That's just the way it is. Humanity wasn't made for glory. Humanity wasn't made for noble purposes. I wasn't made for any transcendent purpose. It's just, this is the way it is. She said that. She wrote that 60 years ago. We domesticate despair and have learned to settle for it, learned to live with it happily. So Paul comes to the scene and he starts talking to people like us, lost treasure hunters who might even have said, well, there's really no treasure at all. And he says, no, no, no. He says, there is a lost treasure, and this treasure is Jesus. Now, this sounds obvious to some of you. You're like, yawn fest. Awesome. I learned this when I was three years old. Here's why this is important. If you don't know what's missing, you don't know to even be looking for it. If you don't know you're missing something, you lost something, you don't expend any effort in searching for it, right? Paul wants you to know something is missing, even for the Christian in the room, because Paul's writing to Christians. If you don't know something is missing, you're not looking for it. And if you're not looking for it, you're not finding it. So Paul, as a pastor like me, he loves his people. He's writing this letter to them. Why? Verse 2. To increase their knowledge so that they would be encouraged. Paul sees these people like us. Remember I, I said your week wasn't this glorious, enjoyable thing. It was probably more like completely forgetting about God. It was probably more like a little bit miserable. It was probably discouraging in some ways. Paul's writing this to encourage discouraged people. 
He's writing this to fan people into flame whose hearts are like a bowl full of wet wood. That's why Paul's doing all of this. He says in verse 2, that we might grow in the knowledge of Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Really quickly, what's this, all this talk about mystery? Because this is part of the theme of the treasure, right? What's this mystery that God's hidden that's now revealed in Jesus? Here's the deal. We sang about it right before I got up here when I surveyed the wondrous cross. The mystery is how God would choose to reintroduce himself to the world that had rejected him. The mystery that was hidden for all the ages is how he would repair the damage. It's how he would come and rescue his people. Nobody could have invented this stuff. That God himself would be the condemned one. That God himself would climb up on a cross where only you and I belonged. No one saw it coming. The disciples didn't see it coming. That's why every single one of them turned on Jesus beforehand. It's why every single one of them after the resurrection still didn't believe. It's why Thomas didn't believe. It's why even months later at the Great Commission, they're still doubting him because they couldn't understand the mystery that the infinite God, the good God, the innocent God would become the guilty one who would climb up in your place, climb into the bullseye of the firing squad in your place. He would take what's owed to you and he would give you what's owed to him, which is life forever which is full grace, which is full freedom. That's the mystery. Nobody saw it coming. And Paul says that mystery has now been revealed in Jesus and in his death and resurrection, which means that Jesus is the key to understanding everything. Not just scripture, not just tips for living, but Jesus himself is the point. He's the key that unlocks the mystery of life. He is the key that unlocks your purpose as a human being. He's the key that unlocks your future. He's the key that unlocks how you get back to God. It's all about him. Have you got tired of me saying this yet? Because every week, we're not talking about Bible stuff. We're not talking about tips for you, techniques for you. We're talking about a person who came to save you. Because Christianity is not tips for you to save yourself. It's the historical account of the God who came to save you. Again, Paul writes these things so that you would be encouraged, so that you guys right now here tonight, so that your feet would start running to Jesus. For some of you for the first time, for some of you for the 10,000th time, Paul is talking to you. He is speaking over you until he sees these sparks come up and these flames, and he sees faith increasing, and he sees your feet begin to run to him and say, I need him. I need him. That's what he's trying to do. There's a guy named Robert Ballard. Robert Ballard is very, very famous, even if you haven't heard of him. He is a treasure hunter. Robert Ballard, Josh is the only person in this room. Sorry, the Josh behind you, Josh Moreno. (laughs) Josh Divin is the only person in this room who probably knows all about Robert Ballard. Robert Ballard discovered the wreck of the Titanic. He also discovered the wreck of all these other Phoenician ships and things that everybody has spent centuries looking for but never found. Titanic sunk in, I think, 1911, 1912, and it wasn't found until 1985. Robert Ballard found them. Here's how it happened. As a little boy, of course, he grew up hearing about the Titanic. He heard the historical accounts. He read the books. He had that little adventurous spirit. He went to college. He became uh, this 
world-renowned explorer and searcher for these things. And the more he read about the Titanic, the more he understood the details, the historical accounts, the more his interest in it grew, the more his faith that there was a wreck, that it did happen, and that it's discoverable, the more his faith grew in that. Here's the deal. Remember, I said Paul wants you to act, not just to be like, that was cool. Jesus is really cool. Back to my life. Paul wants you to move. Robert Ballard, the more he studied this, the more he knew about it, the more he was persuaded this happened, it existed, the more money he spent buying cutting-edge equipment, such cutting-edge equipment the U.S. Navy funded his search for the Titanic because they're like, we could use this to do some stuff in war. This is cool stuff. He started investing his life, his time, his ships, and finding the wreckage of the Titanic. And he did this because he knew. He wasn't there. He didn't see it. He knew because of the accounts that it happened. He knew because of the accounts that the wreckage was there. He knew it was discoverable. And so he rearranged his life to find the treasure. And he did after a long search. This is Hebrews 11.6 in Living Color. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would come to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Friends, again, you have to know the Bible is the historical account. It's historical. It's not inspirational. God has no interest in giving you an emotional pick-me-up that's not true. It is rooted in history. The more you know of it, The more you see it, the more you study it, the more you cross-check it, the more you question it and find it not lacking, the more your faith begins to grow, that this Jesus is for you, that he is perfectly compatible with your brokenness, your confusion, your stuckness, your addictions, your darkness, your death. But you can't get to him apart from reading the accounts, knowing the facts, right? That's why we talk about reading the Bible. Robert Ballard never would have found the Titanic without reading the newspaper, without reading the books. So that's why Paul says he's writing to us. We have to know that. Here's where we end this third point. We've talked about there is indeed a lost treasure in our lives and in this life. We've talked about that the treasure is Jesus. Paul says that straight up. The whole Bible says that. Paul says that contrary to your doubts and your suspicions and your cynicism, contrary to us domesticating our despair and learning to live with it, Jesus is findable. He's discoverable. He has come. He has introduced himself. He has made himself known. He speaks to you tonight. The last thing on the page is when you find this treasure, build your life on it. As Paul gets towards the end of this part of the the letter, he doesn't want you to move on onto some other treasure because he knows you have a heart just like Paul's, which is prone to wander, prone to leave the God he loves every day. Paul doesn't want you to pick up shop and go on the exploration for the next piece of shiny treasure. It's always fun to um, ask yourself this question, why does this city exist? Not just this city, but why does any city exist where it does? Anna and I went to Silver City this past weekend. Silver City exists because somebody found silver there a long, long time ago. And silver makes you rich. 
And so somebody was like, we need to build a silver mine here. And if we're going to have a silver mine, we need to have restaurants. If we have restaurants, we need to have hotels for people to come and visit. We need to have a railroad. We need to have water. We need to have a jail. A city is built on top of treasure. Why does New York City exist where it does? Why not somewhere else? Because the Hudson River is navigable and can get you to sell all of your products all the way up into Canada. And it has, it's surrounded by ports on every single side. That's why New York City exists where it does. They built New York City on top of treasure. Why is Las Cruces here? <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> Las Cruces is here because it sits on top of one of the continent's biggest aquifers. More water sits underneath you than almost anywhere else in the nation. Las Cruces is where it is because the Rio Grande is here. Las Cruces is where it is because it has silt in the valley that grows pecans and corn and cotton and chili peppers. That's why Las Cruces is here. You build cities on top of treasure. Jesus says you build lives on top of treasure. Remember when he says don't build your life, don't build your house on the sand, but on the rock? Do you remember he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth where the moth and rust and thieves destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven? Do you remember what he says after that? Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Friends, you have built your life where you think treasure is. And I do too. And if that's where you've built your life, we are nomads, every single one of us. None of us stay very long in any one place because we keep exhausting the supply. The wells go dry and we have to pack up shop and move on to another treasure somewhere else. So the treasure hunt continues, right? Is this not true? Is this not what we're doing with all the blessings God's given us, with all the things in his world? Are we not just sucking one well dry and then getting disappointed and exhausted that all the stuff we talk about all the time doesn't satisfy us in any permanent kind of way. That it's not the treasure we were made for. So we say, well, guess this isn't doing it. On to this next thing. <laughs> Always chasing the rainbow, trying to get to the pot of gold. Paul is writing this letter because he doesn't want you to take out the tent spikes. He doesn't want you to pack up the car and go off on another treasure hunt because he says, if you're in Jesus, you already have the treasure. But the reason you're so bored with him, the reason you're so disappointed, the reason you feel so weak, the reason you still feel so in the dark, so resourceless, is because you think you have exhausted him. What I mean by that, you think you have sucked up all the nutrients out of him and now there's nothing left. So some of you have been playing a game for 10 years, pretending like you're still getting nutrients and nourishment from Jesus when you haven't tasted that in decades. If you think you've depleted the supply, if you think you've reached the bottom of him, you've gotten all there is, you have begun to move on, and I do too. And so Paul says, go back. He is infinite. He is inexhaustible. He is transcendent. He is eternal. He had no beginning. He has no end. There is no, there is no fill mark on his grace. There is no overflowing mark on his love because it's infinite. His justice, like J.R. prayed earlier, is infinite. 
There's no limit to it. There's no place where he's getting low and needs a fill up. His power, his beauty, his glory, his captivation is limitless. How can we think? How dark a place are we if we think we have sucked it dry? The transcendent, eternal one. And we're bored. And we think, I've already heard this stuff before. I've already heard this sermon before. Why am, this is boring. How does that happen? And I say this to you myself. Paul says, root yourself in him, establish yourself in him, which is his way of saying, return to go. Go back to Jesus in your small groups, in your conversations, in your prayers, in your thoughts. Go back to Jesus. In your anxiety, go back to Jesus. In your temptation, go back to Jesus. In your fears about the future, go back to Jesus. There is more for the taking. And he is so willing to share more of himself with you. We end with my college town, Athens, Georgia. Brittany and Anna will appreciate this. I spent 10 years in my college town. I have a reason. It's not important, but I was there for 10 years. Uh, And 10 years in the same college town. For those of you who grew up in Las Cruces, you, you feel me here. 10 years in the same town, you get tired of it, right? You feel like, been there, done that. I've, I've literally eaten at every place in this town. I've done every fun activity. I've seen everything. I know all the people. I want to get out. So at the end of 10 years, I'm like ready to go. I finally made my peace. I'm emotionally detached from my beloved city of Athens, Georgia. Uh, and I'm ready to roll. I was moving to Philadelphia. I'm like, this city's like 50 times bigger. There's tons of stuff to do. It's city life. It's awesome. And I was ready to go. Until about three months before I left Athens... I discovered things I'd never known in 10 years living there. Running trails I never knew existed. Lakes that were like two miles from my house that I never knew about that were gorgeous. Railroad trestles that we would go to and it was just like these shoals. Y'all know what a shoal is. A shoal is a big river with lots of rocks in it. They're all over the place everywhere else but here. But those kind of things, just these beautiful places, restaurants that I'd never heard about that I went to, and I was like, I'm complete. This is awesome. People, people. I'm like, where have you been for the past decade? The most amazing people I met in my last three months. So what happened is literally the week or two before I leave, I start telling people, I don't want to leave this place. It's like, I didn't think about Philly at all. I was starting to get scared about moving on to Philly. I was like, I want to stay here. I want to stay another 10 years. All because the city that I thought I had exhausted and depleted of all of its glory, all of its resources, for some reason, I circled back around and I started to rediscover and re-fall in love with the city like never before. And I loved it twice as much as I did before. Jesus is more glorious than Athens, Georgia. That's a dinky little college town of 100,000 people. You could exhaust Athens, Georgia. There's people who live there who want to get the heck out. Jesus is this booming, life-overflowing metropolis. You cannot deplete him. You cannot plumb his depths. You cannot reach the end of it or him. There is always more for the giving, more for the taking. Paul says to you tonight, better yet, Jesus says to you tonight, come to me. 
Come to me for this life. Stop. Why are you waiting? Why are you doing the Robert Ballard thing where you know more and more about the Titanic and it's never led you to buy a single piece of equipment? It's never led you to do a single thing about it. He's saying, study it, see me, hear me, and come. There is more for the taking. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us. Like I said earlier, I still remember speaking these words. It's like speaking over a pile of wood and trying to make it come on fire. You have to do that. So come and do what only you can do. Pray also for my friends kind of um, thinking about fall conference. If it's your will, bring them. And if it's not, don't. But do give us courage and faith that we would make decisions uh, out of wisdom um, and decisions that are good for us and good for the group. And uh, so give us peace whether we decide to come or whether we decide to stay. Help us to be content and comfortable in that decision. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.